This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Sarah Oreck to the show. Dr. Sarah is a Columbia-trained psychiatrist focused on women's mental health. She is a reproductive psychiatrist that also specializes in talk therapy, a really unique combination that gives her such great insight into the challenges women face in the postpartum period. Now, if your experience is anything like mine, pregnancy and the postpartum period can be filled with fear and anxiety, worries of all sorts. And I have invited Dr. Sarah on the show today to help us determine what are normal or average amounts of anxiety and worry during pregnancy and the postpartum period, and what might be more red flags and concerning amounts of anxiety that we might want to seek some support for or learn some skills to be able to manage. Anxiety is one of those experiences that often gets swept under the rug or pushed away as normal mom worry but can be absolutely debilitating to the person who is experiencing it. We help to identify how it presents in pregnancy and the postpartum because it can look different in each stage or a season. And we also talk about ways that moms can seek support or learn new skills to help manage and cope during this really challenging time. This conversation has so many tidbits and insights for you to take away. Let's hear my conversation with Dr. Sarah. Do you ever feel like your mind is betraying you? Scary thoughts can pop into our heads out of nowhere. It can be disturbing, frightening, and make you question your own desires and urges. They can leave you assuming the worst, avoiding certain parenting situations, or attempting to control everything to do with your child out of fear. These scary thoughts, also known as intrusive thoughts, can be very concerning, but they are actually completely normal. In fact, some studies show that close to 100% of moms experience scary thoughts. And yet this is something nobody prepares us for. We're left to struggle with these thoughts on our own. The good news is that when you know what to do when a scary thought pops up, you can ditch the fear, find peace of mind, and trust yourself again. Dr. Reem, Psyched Mummy, and I created When Your Thoughts Become Scary, a workshop to help you learn the skills to navigate intrusive thoughts before they take over. You'll learn how to understand scary thoughts and why you're having them, know what to do when a scary thought pops up, and find peace of mind and regain trust in yourself again. Join us for the live workshop on October 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern or 10 a.m. Pacific. If you can't make it live, no problem. You'll get lifetime access to the recording so you can watch it at your own pace and revisit the workshop whenever you need. It's time to take control of your thoughts instead of letting them control you. Head to happyasamother.co slash scary thoughts to learn more and register today. That's happyasamother.co slash scary thoughts. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we're dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. We all had expectations going into motherhood, but reality often has a different plan. Let's work together in shattering unrealistic expectations, letting go of shame and guilt, and accepting where we are on our motherhood journey. 
We'll pack a toolbox for motherhood with expert advice, practical tips, relatable stories, real moments, and honest conversations. My goal is to give you the knowledge, tools, and resources you need to parent more freely. However, this podcast should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. It's time to do motherhood differently, toss out the idea of perfect, and enjoy the journey. Let's dive in. Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I've followed your Instagram and sort of admired your content from a distance for a while now, and I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, ditto. I absolutely love your content, and I'm so excited to join in today. I'm curious how you took to Instagram in reproductive psychiatry, from med school to professional environments to Instagram. How did that come about for you? You know, I think with a lot of resistance, a lot of doubts, certainly, I come from a training background that was very formal. I think very much in the psychiatrist as sort of a blank slate for their patients. I did work with a lot of, in, in a lot of therapy, and I am a therapist as well as a prescriber. And so Instagram, you know, was challenging. It was a little bit scary. And, uh, in terms of, there's a lot of self-disclosure that happens often on social media. But then I started to see how we could really leverage it for education and Mm -hmm. to really build community and talk about things that people weren't talking about as much then and really sort of provide from sort of an expertise, I think information that people are really craving and don't have. And I think about when I'm with patients and how much of that time is actually spent on education that we can do Mm -hmm. in sort of an Instagram platform. Yeah. So there's been a lot of doubts, a lot of, should I show that? Should I share that? But sort of thoughtfully doing it. And and I think there is a space for it. Mm -hmm. I can echo that wrestling with what to share, what not to share. And as we step out as content creators in a space that is like psychoeducational, but we're licensed professionals, there's this weird set of expectations on us that is maybe different than the average creator or mommy blogger and things. I think that's also the beauty of it though, because we do have standards and regulations to uphold and ethics that we're not sharing misinformation and we're not, you know, like there, we have a standard that we're held to. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. It can hold us back, but it also gives us that added credibility as well. Oh, absolutely. And really about encouraging people ultimately to seek treatment, right? Because we cannot be the treaters, but we are just sort of the starting point to maybe destigmatize some of these things or make them yeah. more accessible. And I think a lot of the issues with medicine and mental health is that it feels really inaccessible. It feels like it's for someone else. It's not for me. And I do think by not sort of moving with the times of how people are communicating and learning, you know, we're really missing out if we're not sort of in that ecosystem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And talking in that vein about psychoeducation and helping people understand, one of the things that I was messaging you about before this was what topic to address. And I think that perinatal anxiety, so anxiety in both pregnancy and the postpartum period is such an like It's not understood. It's chalked up to so many things other than anxiety that I feel like it's a great conversation for us to demystify and maybe bust some of the myths around anxiety and its experience in the perinatal period today. 
Oh, absolutely. I think it's poorly understood. Honestly, it's understudied, which is part of the reason, right? Like the estimates are super rough. You know, we hear sometimes one in five women postpartum have this in the United States, but like we think that those numbers actually increased during COVID, maybe even threefold. But again, not enough studies to really understand what it is. And I also think people aren't diagnosing it because mm-hmm. if, if, and you know this in the field, most of the screening tools we use are really focused on depression. Right. Like anxiety is a really under the radar, under assessed, chalked up to mom worry and right, just yes. first time mom jitters yes. and all these yes. other things other than anxiety, hey? Yeah, and really the way that I see it, and I'm sure you see it so much in clinical practice, I really think it's much more than one in five. Yeah, yeah. So if we could maybe lay the foundation of what postpartum anxiety is and how it presents, and then I feel like there's this like, there's this textbook list of how it presents, right? And then I feel like what we'll also talk through a lot today is like also the applied applications so we can maybe know in our behavior, the things that we say and do a little bit as well, what might be red flags for anxiety? So perinatal anxiety actually is a big umbrella and it includes a lot. And I think this might be some of the source of confusion and why we have a hard time tracking it or understanding what it is. So I would say postpartum anxiety is an umbrella. And then what we have under it is sort of similar things like generalized anxiety, but we really call it postpartum anxiety, but I like to call it perinatal anxiety, but it's more generalized. But then what also falls into those categories are postpartum, and I'm going to say postpartum, but I want to just say that everything that happens postpartum can actually start during pregnancy. And we think about 50% of these postpartum depression, anxiety, all those actually start in pregnancy. So postpartum OCD is one of these. Postpartum PTSD I think this one is not talked about enough about the trauma that can sometimes occur around pregnancy and birth. And again, these all have sort of anxiety components, but what we see most commonly, let's call it postpartum anxiety, which I think is sort of more similar or mirrored to generalized anxiety. Right, right. And I've noticed with clients Postpartum anxiety doesn't get screened for, as you said, in the way that postpartum depression does. So it really flies under the radar. I find, especially in pregnancy, it goes undetected. And then even when it is detected, or even when I do work with clients who maybe have paralyzing amounts of anxiety in pregnancy, there is a real fear and resistance and urge to maybe seek treatment or do much about it because we're like, anxiously carrying this little baby, right? So it really can have a significant impact in a mother's functioning, both in pregnancy and in the postpartum, because it flies under the radar. And then there can often be some fear and apprehension about treating it as well. Oh, absolutely. And I also think that something that might mitigate it during pregnancy is that you actually get to see your doctor quite frequently or your midwife, Mm. right? And then we sort of notice that in the postpartum, you're sort of maybe you see one once or twice, you're seen once or twice in the postpartum. So I wonder if sort of that interaction can be reassuring or helpful. And, and, but it's interesting, you're seeing doctors or midwives more often, and also the red flags aren't going up. Mm -hmm. But in pregnancy, I think about even kick counts, Mm-hmm. Right, how anxiety provoking it can be that sometimes your own treatment team is asking you to do this thing 
And again, obviously the OBGYN is going to be, you know, the person to go to, to kind of assess these issues, but kick count can often be, I think, more anxiety provoking than helpful. Mm -hmm. And this for people that don't know is for when there's any movement changes to kind of make sure that nothing's going on or that there isn't a concern around the baby, but truly people I think who are anxious have a lot of sensitivity in their bodies and pregnancy brings a lot of those up, right? Mm. What's happening? What's this ache? What's this pain? What am I feeling? And I think you're right to kind of zero in on pregnancy because I think there's a lot to that in terms of the changes that we're experiencing Mm -hmm. and how physical anxiety can be. Right. What I would love for us to do here actually is let's go through the textbook definition of anxiety and what it looks like. And then I would love for us practically to break this out in how it shows up in pregnancy and then how it shows up in postpartum. Cause I think they're pretty distinct and there's some different behaviors. I think we can adopt in each of those different time periods that can speak to our anxiety. So from a textbook perspective, what is our list in terms of what we're looking for, for anxiety? Yeah. So I like to first start off by saying that anxiety is worry, but it's worry that really impairs functioning. One that becomes so overwhelming that it is distressing because there is a normal amount of worry that I think we've mentioned. And unfortunately, I think sometimes what happens is normalizing some of the stuff that is actually postpartum anxiety into like, oh, you know, this is real. Your brain has literally changed. Your amygdala has gotten bigger during pregnancy because you're vigilant about protecting a baby that cannot fend for itself. But I do think that worry crosses that line into distress, into not being able to enjoy certain moments and joy because you're so paralyzed by it. And again, it's difficult to kind of like hone in on a perfect definition because I do think for everyone, it's sort of different. So Mm -hmm. some things that are really prevalent can be this worry around everything, ideas that something bad is going to happen, sleep disturbances, which again is difficult during pregnancy or postpartum because those are sort of inherent to some hormone changes as well as having an infant who needs to be fed every two to three hours. But Mm -hmm. real trouble relaxing, irritability, fatigue, appetite changes, difficulty sort of transitioning from thing to thing or even bonding with your baby. But I think what really feels unique in terms of postpartum anxiety is the intrusive thoughts. And actually, they can even start in pregnancy. And this, I think, feels very universal in people's experience of perinatal anxiety, which may seem very different if they've experienced anxiety in the past. This seems pretty unique to what happens in pregnancy of really having these disturbing images or thoughts that something terrible is going to happen to baby or that you might do something bad to baby, even though that's something you'd never want or imagine yourself doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The intrusive thoughts and the scary, disturbing thoughts is such a big piece of the puzzle here. We actually have an episode dedicated to scary and intrusive thoughts awesome. with Dr. Cassidy Freitas. So if that's hitting oh, I home love her. for anybody, yeah, if that's hitting home for anybody, I encourage you to search out that in our list and we'll tag it in the show notes because just knowing what they are and knowing how to manage them can be so incredibly freeing. Yeah. And for some people, it's just right not even identifying it or being so frightened to even admit it to anyone that they're going through this right. experience um, is something that happens a lot. 
And again, it's even complicated with intrusive thoughts. I'm sure you talk about this in the episode, but they are rooted in sort of a biological drive to protect baby from any harm. Yeah. But yet the volume is turned up so much that it's disturbing to mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I think about those criteria, it's so funny because we've got like the textbook for like presentation of what we think these things should look like. But then as a therapist who found myself struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety, nothing about how it felt and presented mirrored what I thought the textbook list looked like, right? And so if we take those sleep disturbances, maybe changes in appetite or feeling dread, like the shoe is always going to drop or something bad's going to happen, these intrusive thoughts. And we look at how this might play out in the pregnancy period. What might be some unique things that you see with patients and your therapy clients that might indicate that we're crossing the threshold from like a normal amount of, you know, worry about pregnancy and baby to something that might be more than that? Well, and also what's so incredibly difficult in discerning here with this is that Anxiety often is very physical, right? A pit in your stomach, a feeling in your chest, shakiness, or some bodily changes, right? And like, that's what pregnancy and postpartum literally is, right? It's a bunch of bodily changes. Mm. But I love that question because I do think that there's some patterns, right? Or experiences that pregnant people have in common. And what I start seeing is a great deal of anxiety. One that comes up a lot is over what you ingest, right? Or Mm. what you eat, what you put on your skin, whether that's going to be safe for baby, whether you're going to cause baby some harm. Mm -hmm. And right, for people that it becomes really functionally impairing. I remember one case and, and this ended up being sort of anxiety, postpartum OCD, which we can talk about a little bit more, but was I think a little bit of dish soap left on a plate and tasting food and feeling like the taste of that soap and incredible debilitating concern over days that something had happened to baby as a result. Yes. Yeah. And so similar going through that when baby starts to move concerns that somehow if there's any kind of rest in movement or change in movement, then something had happened and always ultimately thinking that, you know, they were going to have a miscarriage or a stillborn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in order to seek to alleviate that anxiety feeling, I often see a major increase in checking and reassuring behaviors, right? So we might be ordering a Doppler online and constantly checking for the heart rate ourselves. We might be doing these kick counts like far more frequently than is recommended. Exactly. We might be doing other behaviors and I'm, you know, failing to think of them right now, but I'm sure that this can take a lot of forms in a lot of different ways, depending on the person. And that much more, I feel like when we've experienced infertility or losses leading into this pregnancy, right? Because there is this really fundamental human need to like want to know things are okay. But then I think if it's really impairing your functioning, it's understandable that you want the reassurance. It's understandable that you want to know baby is okay. And all of that makes sense from a human perspective. But then also if it's interfering, if it's feeling debilitating, then it's still probably crossed into the realm of anxiety that needs to be focused on. And sometimes it's not even, it doesn't have to be debilitating. People still go on and function and work and do all of that. But I think what we mean is also, is it taking up so much space 
that you don't get to do all of the other wonderful things that you're not actually getting Mm. to enjoy this pregnancy. And I think also, right, because I, I often think that there's this sort of black and white idea of like, well, I'm fine because I go to work. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I'm sort of functioning in my anxiety, but yet your brain space, right, is all sort of occupied by these worries. That Mm -hmm. to me is sort of a functional impairment. Right. Absolutely. Like it's not taking you out of your daily living tasks, but it's still like robbing you of the enjoyment of the presence of this experience. Yes. Yeah. Right. Even though you're doing the task, you're not present focused. You're not right in your body right now where everything is okay. Right. Or you can't go out to dinner with your partner because you fear the food constraints or like contamination issues, or you can't, you know, live in the present with certain things because you're just so consumed and preoccupied with this fear that you have. And it's hard because like COVID brought this up for so many. Right. Oh, COVID is such a big one. Right. Yeah. Pregnancy and postpartum and like, do we vaccinate? Do we not? Do we expose ourselves to people? Do we see people? Like, I feel like that checking behavior, that anxiety piece could look a lot like just withdrawing and isolating to keep babies safe, which we know can have negative impacts on our well-being, right? So that's a tricky one. Yeah. That is a really tricky one, but one that I think is so common. And, you know, even now there's some surges, there's a surge here of COVID and people sort of starting to fall back on into those patterns when there is a relief from COVID or feeling a little bit more comfortable, really a connection to community and support, which we know can be so helpful for all of these issues. Mealtime with kids can be stressful, but with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or vegan and veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, It's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. 
Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so then lots of this gets chalked up to, oh, you're pregnant, oh, baby. And I have this quote, like a top performing post on Instagram, like, oh, I thought that once I made it through the pregnancy, that the fear and anxiety would alleviate. But then I realized it was just the beginning of like keeping this human alive, right? So then we get into the postpartum period. And so we've got, again, this criteria of, you know, sleep being impaired and the ones that you had gone off on the top in terms of the textbook. But how do you see this play out in the patterns in the postpartum period? Well, actually, Erica, I want to just say the birth is also this huge of moment course. Right. of sort of so many different worries. Mm. And I think we could talk about that for a whole episode But certainly, I think some of these pregnancy-related worries are really exacerbated coming into the birth or thinking about the birth, preparing for birth. And so that's, I think, really important to also acknowledge. Right. And the lack of control, right, that ultimately happens during birth. And it sets the tone for our postpartum experience in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Because if we have an emergency C-section or if we have complications or traumatic birth, even if everything goes according to plan, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and we experience it in a way that feels traumatic to us, that just can really set the pace for our adjustment into this new phase. Absolutely. And I think especially when there isn't treatment or there isn't acknowledgement of what these worries are. You know, I think, again, you just go to more visits or get more ultrasounds, but you don't get that sort of relief in terms of psychological support. The birth can really set off a chain of events in terms of the postpartum. So I think Mm. it's really important for us to continue to emphasize that for many, yes, symptoms start in the postpartum, but for 50%, they probably started somewhere in pregnancy. And so Mm. in postpartum symptoms, what are some unique things, right? Now that baby isn't in our bodies and is outside of the womb, what starts to come up in a really frequent pattern that I think in some ways uh, has been exploited by some companies is concern about baby's well-being. Mm -hmm. Is baby breathing? What's their sleep like? What's going on with them? All these uncertainties and unknowns because you have a newborn that can't communicate. 
And I do think that there are some, uh, you know, devices that check different vital signs on baby. And although, you know, they can be useful for some, I do think overall it can heighten the sense of anxiety, especially because they're not medical grade and can have inconsistent results. So this is something I often see where it becomes not checking so much on mom, checking on baby. And then in the postpartum, we see a ramping up of those intrusive thoughts, right? I'm carrying baby down the stairs and imagine dropping him Mm. or her and sort of, Mm -hmm. I never want to harm my baby. What's this about? And I really think if we step back, there is sort of a biological basis for it of actually, I see that there's a risk in me taking my baby down and I just want to make sure I'm holding him tight and he doesn't fall. But, you know, I think it can be tricky again when we don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it can really skew our sense of safety and skew our ability to assess the realistic like probability of something right. happening yeah. in the situation. So for example, you're talking about the down the stairs. And like, let's say that that is such a disturbing thought to have and that we feel so paralyzed by that fear that we start to then like scoot down the stairs on our bum and we, do, and we avoid stairs with baby. Or something like a stroller walk where we have intrusive thoughts about accidentally letting go of the stroller. And so now we either avoid stroller walks or we are white knuckling the stroller the entire time we're on a walk. And a lot of these things when I'm in sessions with mothers come up in the name of safety and in no way are we trying to put or flex thinking to be in unsafe situations, but our sense of safety and like the certainty at which we feel that unsafe situation is going to happen is so skewed under the influence of postpartum anxiety that even walking down the stairs in our home or going outside for a nice stroll has just like doom and gloom attached to it. Absolutely. And again, there are some biological foundations, right? The alarm system of our brain actually grows, especially for the birthing parent. So you're more alert and vigilant because now you have to wake up when baby needs food, right? It makes sense biologically, but I think what it also does, and especially to people who've experienced trauma and have already had sort of some changes in that alarm system is sort of a heightening. And I just like to say, the stuff is within the normal limits, but for you, the volume is just way up. Yeah, yeah. That perceived sense of threat is so high that everything feels threatening. Like even the most maybe simple of daily tasks start to feel threatening. Right, even a bath. Exactly. I I remember an anecdote with one of my patients about using the kitchen sink as the bath, right? With a little bath inserted in there, but feeling like somehow the trash disposal would sort of turn on and there would be Mm -hmm. some catastrophic accident. Mm -hmm. So even a bath can become threatening. Right. Intrusive thoughts even around like cooking in the kitchen, around pots and water and knives. Yes. Even things like around baby sleep, like and just functional things within the home, not even like we're going and doing these risk-taking right. behaviors. It's like these normal everyday things in our life, our brain starts to like alert us of threat. Distorted. Yes. And for the brain that is not being influenced by postpartum anxiety in such a strong way might allow that thought to come and go a little bit more fluidly, Right. But when we've got that postpartum anxiety dialed up, that thought is hard to shake. We get real sticky brain with those thoughts and then they can consume us. 
And absolutely, I think it's so important to think if you actually look back on your life, we all have intrusive thoughts Mm -hmm. that kind of come in and you're like, that's kind of weird. Right. And then they just leave, right? They don't get stuck like you're saying, but there is this vulnerability during this time for the thoughts to really just stay there. Mm -hmm. I've heard this, especially from moms who have gone also through like NICU experiences where they did actually have systems monitoring their child to know and have reassurance that they were healthy and okay. And then they come home and they're like, there's no monitors. Like, how do I know? And so a lot of these like checking behaviors are just so much anxiety from the trauma, from the NICU, from all of it can really ramp up in a lot of ways. And I feel like I see this in a couple of other areas too, around like rigidity around like nap schedules and feeding schedules or wanting to like way baby after every feed to know oh, that they're yes. getting enough. But you know, there's changing tables now that are being sold that are scales. And I'm just like, I know. Ah, right. Let's not sort of perpetuate some of this stuff at home. And so I really struggle with that of like, it's good information, but not every time that you after every feed. <laughs> right. Or it's kind of like to the brain that's not sleep deprived and might not be, you know, dealing with intrusive thoughts and whatever. This might be like, oh, this is like an added nice feature to have. But to the brain who is struggling and sleep deprived and really struggling with sticky, sticky, intrusive thoughts, that's a little bit of a nightmare for us to have that even temptation to be checking to that degree, right? Absolutely. Another behavior that I see quite frequently that's worth noting is difficulty with anyone else taking care of baby. Mm -hmm. And we know that there are already so many pressures on being a new parent and not being able to sort of share that with other people in your family or with caretakers makes the burden really, really, really tough, especially when sleep can actually be one of the best medicines for this anxiety. Right. I'll actually, like, I'll do a little asterisk here, actually, and we'll we'll sidestep for just a moment because I think that this plays out in two expressions. I think that when we're talking anxiety, we're talking moving towards to control to alleviate our symptoms, or we're talking avoidance and moving away from to control our symptoms. So I think that we can have two expressions or experiences of this. And what you're talking about along the lines of that maternal gatekeeping piece where I have to be the one that does it because I will do it right or I will do it with the level of safety that it needs and I will do it, you know, to the level that it needs to be done to ensure that safety, you know, is met or I don't trust myself to do it and I'm not actually going to be left alone with baby. Right on. We see both of that. Yes, I see that so frequently. Yeah. And so I think that it can be both of those expressions depending on the person and the situation. I was certainly more the no one else is touching my child (laughs) expression of that. But I've seen it also be the other way where there's just a real, you know, fear and lack of confidence where it's like, no, actually my partner has to do all the best because I don't trust myself to do it. And I think that can also be complicated because we're talking about anxiety in isolation, but we know mm-hmm. that anxiety and depression come together quite frequently. For some people, these anxiety symptoms become so overwhelming, so functionally impairing that then it does start to interfere with mood and really brings one's mood down and has you know this overlap with depression. And so there can be an isolation or a withdrawing from baby as well as a result of those mood changes. So it can get really complicated. I also see that in some domains, people might want that sense of control. And in other domains, they might be totally hands off. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it, it can be depending on the situation or what's in front of them that they're managing or dealing with. So I probe for these conversations to really help listeners have an understanding of the patterns that play out in the applications of these textbook sort of things that, you know, we encounter on inventory lists and things like that and assessment lists. So if someone's listening right now and they're like, oh my gosh, that was me. Like that is me. That was me. I can so relate to that. What then becomes the next steps in the treatment in pregnancy and or postpartum for anxiety? So circling back to whoever you have in terms of medical providers, if you have any kind of support system that has experienced these things or that you think might be able to hear some of these things, I think just talking to someone about it is the first step. Obviously, my preference is for a medical professional who will take that in and give you appropriate referrals, but that sometimes doesn't happen. And so seeking out, is it Postpartum Support International Directory to see if there's someone that's trained in this area that you can start to see. But I think if we sort of go back, close circles, medical providers start sort of talking about it, asking, does this seem like maybe something I'm struggling with? And of course, there are resources to treatments, but treatments, especially here in the U.S., are difficult to find. And I want to validate that that is a really hard experience, especially recently finding therapists have been very difficult, a lot of wait lists. And again, that's not to discourage you, but to also sort of say it's hard out there, but there are resources. You know, I also like to think if you can't get into that therapist right away, a support group can be so helpful, Mm -hmm. right? Just as a start, because you are not alone. And sometimes having these symptoms feels so lonely. Mm -hmm. So isolating. And of course, when we experience these things, In motherhood, we tend to blame ourselves and question what's wrong with us that we're experiencing them because no one else does. And we sort of go inward with our blame and our emotions versus sort of questioning what may be going on in this transition or uh, like otherwise. And so getting connected with a group can help you feel that sense of community and knowing that you're not alone. In terms of like best like evidence-based treatments for anxiety down that vein. We're talking like talk therapy, ideally with like a maternal mental health specialist, if you can, if they're accessible to you. Like we have a team of one, but we serve Canadian provinces because that's our like licensed jurisdiction. So we have like, we call them mom therapists who are specialized in this time to treat moms and postpartum support international, as you said, has that directory to find. And that can be really beneficial from an evidence-based perspective for anxiety and depression across the board, perinatal or not, I would say, hey, like there's just so much evidence there for like a talk therapy treatment. And what's also great is that one of the silver linings of COVID is really ramping up telepsychiatry or telehealth and telemental health, which I think we've been doing in other settings and now has really become more normalized. We have evidence that it is as effective as in-person therapy. Obviously, there's different dynamics, but I think it's also made it a lot more accessible to many people and support groups where you can connect with people from all over the world, potentially. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, I find your perspective, because you've got this intersection of both being a prescriber and a therapist. So I'm curious... When you are working with a mom, because some of the moms that I speak with even have been in therapy 
and maybe have tried some of the things and still feel like anxiety has them by the throat for lack of a better, you know, analogy. Yes. And so at what point might one consider a medication as a form of treatment? So I think lifestyle changes are also really important. So I always like to say for people who have mild to moderate symptoms, and that's hard to tell, you know, what that is for each person, but after having an assessment and determining where you are on that scale, I do think that therapy is the first step as well as lifestyle changes. Can you get a little bit more sleep? If you're really struggling with breastfeeding, is there a way to augment with formula? Mm. If you're not getting sort of the nutrients you need, can we figure out who can help you in your family to really get you healthful food that can we know can impact mood and anxiety? Can you move your body? That's another thing. Is there ways walking around the block, doing whatever you can to kind of get some movement in your body? Because I think all of those Mm -hmm. are tools to help with mental health issues. But there is a point where people are trying, right? They've given therapy an earnest try for Mm. weeks at a time or maybe even months. And we do know that medications can be really effective and helpful. But again, I like to say, they are only a tool. They are never the full picture. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. what we see, especially in the U.S., is prescribing before therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the pattern in Canada as much. Yeah, I think that there's like a couple layers to that. Like therapy is much more inaccessible for us. It's not covered by our healthcare system, whereas prescriptions and visits to the doctor are. It's kind of a mixed bag in terms of how people can access therapy. I feel like mental health is more becoming prioritized and and being considered healthcare more than it has been in the past, but it still hasn't been put on that same level as like physical healthcare. So often we do get met with a prescription, but like talk therapy can be hard to get into and to afford and wait lists. And yes. And also let's be clear, there's this idea right? That a medication will just fix it. Right. I see what you're saying. I just take it every day. And there's also, yeah, therapy is work. Yeah. It's challenging. It sort of pushes you in ways that maybe you didn't know you wanted to go there or to look at things that maybe you've been avoiding. And in anxiety, you mentioned there's so much avoidance. Mm -hmm. Like medications, I always describe it to my clients as like, are a tool in our toolbox to help us cope, but they don't cope for us. Yes. Right? And they help us get the flexibility in our thinking so that we can use our tools from therapy effectively, but they don't teach us the tools. They don't give us the tools. They are not the only tool, but I have found in situations that they are a critical tool and component to the puzzle. And like you just mentioned, they can sometimes get you going in therapy or opening things that you weren't able to access before because of frigidity, right? right? And and I think that is a great point. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that sometimes where moms have come out of their like birthing experience. I had a mom who almost didn't sleep for like four or five days straight postpartum because of her anxiety. And it's like, we needed a medication before we could work on any coping skills. And it was such a successful way to go about her treatment. And then she gathered the skills and, you know, could really manage more effectively in the postpartum period. But one of the things I want to step back to quickly before we think about wrapping up is those lifestyle changes that you had mentioned. And I don't even remember where I picked up this acronym from another therapist or colleague, I'm sure, but we call it NESTS. And so you write it down sort of as an acronym or like a 
you know, sort of vertically down on your page. And it's nutrition, exercise, sleep, time for self, and support. And usually with clients, this is sort of my first, as you said, my first level of defense or like intervention is like, let's go through these fundamentals of your nutrition. And like, are you eating? Are you feeding your body? Are we taking care of yourself? Are you moving your body? Are you sleeping? Is there a support system around you to sleep? Are you having time for yourself? You know, whatever that looks like, that might look like just showers and taking care of yourself in some way, or that might look like stepping out of the house for a moment on your own or whatever. And what support system do you have? And by going through this bit of an inventory, often I find that other influences to the anxiety, maybe like if there is discord in our relationship, well, of course that plays into our anxiety and our support system, right? Or if we're not sleeping, as you mentioned, well, of course, like if that plays into our brain's ability to you know, recoup and recover overnight and be able to take the next day on. So I think that nest is always a really great starting point of tweaks. And I love that. Yeah, it's so foundational, right? It's so foundational to this. And, you know, often for people who have mild symptoms, what you just mentioned, is it nest? Yeah, nest can be so helpful. And then, you know, even just support or community is enough of a layer or tweaking the roles in a relationship or just a little sleep or augmenting with formula. But of course, I think in an ideal situation, having a clinician who is open to the idea of medications Mm. and sort of thinking about your life holistically, what Mm. else is going on? Because you are not alone. You are in a context and those all need to sort of be looked at in order to really improve our mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I'm just thinking back on our chat today and I think that What I really want moms to take away from this is one, to validate that if you have had any of these symptoms or experiences of anxiety, that you are not alone. And that, you know, also that motherhood isn't necessarily meant to be this way, right? I think that a lot of anxiety, especially gets chalked up to, oh, like this is what motherhood is. This is the motherhood contract. Like I didn't know that this is what I signed up for, but here I am. And I'm going to just like grit my teeth and, you know, plow through. But if you're relating with what we discussed here today, I would say that these step outside of the norm or the average realm of the motherhood experience. And there are ways, right? There are ways to improve and feel better that you don't feel so suffocated by this fear and anxiety. And I think something to kind of destigmatize is that it doesn't mean anything about your mothering skills. Mm. And actually checking in with yourself can allow you to really be present and enjoy this experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Sarah, so much for your time. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. I know you are a content creator. Where can people find you? Where are you hanging out online? Thank you. Yes, I have an active Instagram page where I do a lot of posts, both in Spanish and English, and I'm at at Sarah Oric MD. Mm-hmm. And we'll make sure to tag all of that in the show notes that also become a blog post. We'll make sure to connect everybody with you there. So thank you again for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Erica. I absolutely loved my conversation with Dr. Sarah. And I can see so much of myself in these conversations with guests. And I can see so many of my clients as well who have struggled and wrestled with trauma and anxiety and 
learning new skills to manage while also transitioning into parenthood. These are not skills that many of us have been handed or taught growing up. Many of these regulation skills and coping skills I've also had to learn myself. The good news is that these skills can be learned and we can learn to manage our anxiety and our moods more effectively. If you are unsure where to start and you want to seek the support of one of our mom therapists, you can head to happyasamother.co slash wellness. That's happyasamother.co slash wellness. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where we are being joined by my friend, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. Dr. Cassidy is joining us to help us prepare for and manage the transition back to work after being home with baby on leave and transitioning back into the workplace. You do not want to miss this episode. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast. To join the Happy as a Mother VIP list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to happyasamother.co slash newsletter. Until next episode, mama, I want you to know, Keep showing up. You're doing an amazing job. Settling is not an option for me. Everything I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all, and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.